Thanks for spending time with Fusion Community Church through our podcast. These can be accessed anytime through iTunes or on our website, fusioncommunity.church. We hope you enjoy today's message from Pastor Andrew Fetter. Hey, uh, last week we kind of kicked off just kind of a little bit of a a bite-sized series for a few weeks, looking at uh, an individual in the Old Testament, really with just the, 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 the explanation that it's the one who's responsible for the most number of miracles other than Jesus. Uh, it's a good reason to take a look at somebody's life. So we're looking at the life of Elisha, and last week we talked about burn the plow faith. And, and, and when you look at his story, I'm not going to recount the whole message, but, but everything that day seemed to be the same, and all of a sudden things turned out differently at the end of the day than he had planned. How many times has that been your circumstance in life? How many times have your life, has your life been going a certain way, a certain direction, a certain road, and things change differently than you planned? Now, typically, we tend to remember when things have went sideways or upside down in a bad way more often than we realize the things that have went in our lives that, are, that were good at the end of the day, like Elisha being invited out of you know, the, uh, the oxen residue and, and into a whole new life as, as a, the, the understudy prophet of Elijah. But how often have things turned out differently than you planned? How many times have, have what you thought you could predict or thought you could control and then boom, it's not what you expected. I mean, this happens at work, right? You think you can plan on one thing. You think you can predict how the market's going to go in 2020. You figure like you have, the, you have enough time for the parts or the materials you need for the job until all of a sudden you get word that there's a material shortage. Or, or you think you can reply, re, uh, rely on your employees or your coworkers and then, oops, something goes wrong or somebody doesn't show up. This happens at home. You think you have your week all figured out. Everybody's getting where they have to be at a certain time, on time, where they need to be. You didn't forget to pick up anybody that, that you had to pick up. You think you have the weather figured out for the day, right? And when you're going to mow and when you're not going to mow, when you're going to do hay. You, you think you have your meals all figured out for the week. You think you have all those emotions finally figured out of your kid or your teenager. And then, oops, something goes hairy. This also happens in relationships. I think you can trust somebody. You think that, that your love for each other will, will be able to sustain the most crazy thing that could come your way, that, that it'll, you'll still have enough to be linked together, that, that you just can't imagine anything would break the bond you have with, with your parent or, or with your siblings or with that friend or with your spouse, that, that you've seen other people go through hard times and it, it, it breaks things apart, but, but that'll never be you, right? Until it is. Well, today, the next part of Elisha's life is going to look like a story like that. The context of this is a battle, and it's a pretty crazy story. You know, in in 2 Kings chapter 3, there's this moment in Elisha's life, and it's just like a dozen verses. And it's a story that many of us are going to be familiar with. But, But sometimes, this is one of the benefits of Bible study, getting into the details of the Word of God and not just kind of reading it on the surface. And, and it's good to read on the surface and find an application. But there's great value in probing a little bit deeper into the text. Okay, what's this really saying? What's being said behind the scenes, the context of the text, that I don't even realize? And this is one to me that is just profound. With Even though there's little sentences or statements that are made by Elisha or some of the other characters in this moment in history, and it's just like a statement, but there's so much behind the statement. So let me kind of set up the story for you. Uh, in this moment for Elisha, there, there are three separate nations, three separate kings that have aligned their forces to go to war with the Moabites. And, and it seems like this will be an easy thing. It'll be a predictable path and, and, and even what seems like a good strategy. 
And all of a sudden, these three armies are going to experience what happens when things don't go according to plans. They think they have everything figured out until things go sideways. Now, at this moment, um, if you could kind of envision with me, I don't have slides. Uh, We had a little bit of a technical glitch. But if you could imagine with me, you've got three nations kind of north to south. You have Israel, Judah, and Edom. And, and then there's this body of water that kind of runs on one side of them to the, to the east. And, and they're going to kind of go down into Edom and turn a corner to go around the water to come up from the south into Moab. Well, the king of Israel, Judah, and Edom, they've all joined forces for this attack. And they've set out on a march towards the south through Edom and around that body of water. And on the seven-day march, they run out of water. Now, they're not just out of water, they're completely out of water and have been for days. Things are not going as the king's planned. Not the king of Israel, not the king of Judah, not the king of Edom. And at this moment, their greatest need in the whole world is not to win a victory. Their greatest need in the whole world is not to get home safe and see their kids again. Their their greatest need is water. They're thirsty, they're parched, the animals are starting to die. The the entire national armies of three nations that have consolidated their forces to go to war, and now they have weary soldiers, and they are thirsty. They have a significant need. And you know what's amazing about a significant need is when a significant need rises, we have a new reason, a new hunger to be reliant on God when we know we can't provide for ourselves. But when we have everything we need or we want, we get lazy. We forget who our provider is. We forget who our sustainer is. We forget those moments of desperation. We start to rely on ourselves. So this moment is God orchestrated because it's going to rise within them no matter how much they're thirsty for water. They begin to realize in this moment their greatest thirst is for God because he's the one that's the provider of what their bodies need in water. So 2 Kings chapter 3, I invite you to turn there with me. Uh, I'm going to kind of have a little bit of fun, go a little bit old school with the New King James Version, uh, starting in verse 9. This is what we're told. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they marched on that roundabout route seven days, and there was no water for the army, nor for the animals that followed them. And the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. Now, to give you the backstory here, Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah, and one of the servants of the king of Israel, because the army of Israel just gotten there, is informing him that Elisha is here. Jehoshaphat didn't know that, being the king of Judah. And, so, and, and they're referencing Elijah because Elijah had an incredible reputation. And Elisha is Elijah's successor. We talked about that a little bit last week. God had done incredible things to Elijah, and already God is using Elisha in a similar fashion. So the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, that's a fun word to say, just say it out loud, Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat. He knew that Elisha's role given by God, was to be a prophet for the people of God. But he didn't know Elisha had arrived with the army. So a servant in Israel informs him of that. So in verse 12, Jehoshaphat said, Well, the word of the Lord is with him. I know that guy. He understudied under Elijah. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom, now all of a sudden when they're in need and the only one that can provide for the need is God, there is one guy on their to-do list that day. we got to go get Elisha. we got to find out what we're to do. Verse 13, Elisha looks at the king of Israel, Jehoram, and he says, what have I to do with you? 
Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. Now, you can read this statement and just move in. What, is, what does that even mean? What's the context there? Well, Jehoram's dad is, is recorded in the Old Testament as the most evil king in Israel's history, Ahab. Okay? And one of the reasons why Ahab is so detestable in the sight of God and detestable as a king is because he chose to marry someone who worshipped Baal, a false god, and, and kind of ex- added a lot of fire to that flame, causing many of the Hebrew people to participate in the worship of Baal, even forcing people to a woman named Jezebel. So Ahab and Jezebel are King Jehoram's parents. And she was primarily responsible for inviting and encouraging Israel to worship false gods. Now, last week I mentioned there was a moment for the prophet Elijah, that pay-per-view experience, where Elijah stood on Mount Carmel alone against 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah. And their god Baal, they cried out to him all day. They cut themselves. They're having their own worship services. Baal, Asherah, show us your power. Ignite the the, the altar and the the sacrifice. Ignite it on fire. Prove prove to this one prophet of the God of Israel that, that you're more powerful than him. They do it all day. Nothing happens. So dramatic and so flamboyant and so theatrical in their presentation. And what does Elijah do? He steps forward, builds the altar does a few other things to it to make it even more complicated to set on fire. And then he basically steps back. He's like, God, show him who you are. And boom, it's ignited. God reveals his power in an instant. And as a result, 850 false prophets are executed. Needless to say, Jezebel, the queen, is furious about this. She wants to kill Elijah for exposing that her god Baal is powerless. He doesn't even exist. She's the mom of now the king of Israel, Jehoram. So he didn't have the most upright, God-honoring, God-fearing upbringing as the the king of Israel. And here in 2 Kings 3, Elisha, the prophet of God, he's kind of got a little attitude. Like, you know, he's kind of salty a little bit. He's gutsy and bold. I mean, he's looking at the king of Israel in his eyes, eyeball to eyeball, and, and he comes with the king of Edom and the king of Judah, and they're just like, tell us, what do we do? He's just like, what have I got to do with you? And then he's kind of he's having some fun. He's kind of sticking the dagger in and twisting. He's like, you should go ask the prophets of your mom and dad. Oh, yeah, they're dead, aren't they? Yeah, that didn't work out so well. What, what are you asking for God's help for? I thought you were big on Baal and Asherah. Without that context, you don't see the humor here. You don't see the sarcasm. Sometimes we forget that the people in Scripture, they're people just like us. And they like to, 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 to be sarcastic and have humor. Well, go ask them for help. Now you're turning to ask God. Sometimes that humor and context can be lost, or the confidence can be lost if we don't understand the context. So, but the king of Israel said to him, he responds to this dig, he says, no, for the Lord has called these three kings together. They believed it was God's hand that drew Israel, Judah, and, and, and uh, Edom together to go and attack Moab. And they feel like right now God is delivering them into the hand of Moab, that, that all these armies have been aligned by God to just hand them over to die in the wilderness without water. They don't stand a chance in a battle. Verse 14, and Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, that's who I represent. He's kind of countering what he just said to, uh, to, to, to Jehoram. He's saying that the God, the God of all gods, the, the Lord of all lords, the king of all kings, as the, the Lord of hosts lives, he's alive, your gods are dead. We've proved that over and over again before whom I stand, who I represent. Surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, 
He's basically saying, I have great respect for Jehoshaphat. He's a man after God's own heart. He seeks God. He's trying to encourage the nation of Judah to do the same. He says, if it weren't for him being here, I wouldn't look at you nor see you. I mean, he's snarky. I like this guy, right? He's saying, he's saying, listen, if you weren't standing beside him, a good king that sinks after the will of God and wants to teach his people by his own obedience how to be obedient to God, if he wasn't here, I wouldn't even acknowledge you're in the room. But since he is, here's the statement he says. Now, bring me a musician. Bring me a musician. Now, in other translations specifically, we know that Elisha asked for a harpist. Which is kind of funny, too. If you think about it, they're on a battlefield. They've been walking seven days. And so Elisha kind of responds to the request, okay, you want me to talk to God? I need you to go get the the biggest, heaviest, most awkward-to-move instrument that we have access to. Go find it and then find somebody else that plays it, that has, you know, those magical fingers for a harp. And you might think, well, that's, like, really demanding, like, really, is that necessary? Couldn't you just kind of pray, or couldn't you just kind of fast, or like have a little circle, hold hands, sing kumbaya or something? No, but the reality is, this was not an uncommon practice for the prophets. See, there's something, something different takes place, something powerful, when we kind of push aside the distractions of life and our own thinking, and we just, we just worship God in utilizing the arts that he's given us incredible creative ability for goes back to what we started with earlier, that God wants to inhabit the praise of his people. And that's a praise in song, but it's also praise just verbally. It's, it's hearts of gratitude. <clears throat> and for those of you that are followers of Christ, surely, if you've been walking with God for any length of time, you know that there is something that happens that's unique when your heart is kind of gliding towards God with a rhythm or a cadence or, or lyrics or music, even as we did just this morning, you know, singing Reckless Love or singing a song like that. I can tell you in my own life that there's times when I'm looking for an answer, I'm looking for direction from God, or I'm working on a message or sermon series, and I just need to close the Bible. I just need to, to, to shut my computer and, and turn off the software and, and just kind of pull back from the content and turn on some worship music, turn on something instrumental, and, and just kind of reconnect with God because there's a wall, and the only way to break through that wall is that God leads us through it. It draws us in, reconnects us. It brings communion with the Holy Spirit. And oftentimes, it also convicts our hearts. We don't like to admit or, or talk about often that, that there's times where we need the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin because that's the wall. There's stuff in our lives that's preventing us from hearing from God, preventing us from getting direction from God or getting guidance from God, is there's unchecked sin we haven't yet confessed. Oftentimes, in worship, God convicts me. There's a, a lyric that will come up of a song that I know, you know by heart, and I'll be like, I, I can't sing that song authentically. Because God's revealing to me that there's sin that needs to be confessed. And so that's what Elisha does. He's like, go get a harpist. Play the harp. And so there's the three kings. They're there. They're, they're hanging out in the room. And all right, this is it. He's going to give us a word of encouragement. This is what the prophets always do, man. Bring a harpist. Play. This goes back to King David. And, 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 and he's going to tell us God's going to send rain. We're going to see clouds in the distance. And rain's going to come. And it's going to happen. It's going to, yeah, this music's beautiful. Creation is beautiful. God's good. He's going to show up. And then verse 15. Then it happened. When the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. And he said, thus says the Lord. Make this valley full of ditches. Huh? What? It's not what we were expecting. Boy, this just went... Right, really quick. Is this kind of like the salty attitude of Elisha again? Is he making a joke? Is he being humorous? Is this sarcasm? This isn't a promise to send rain. This seems like a ridiculous command. 
And, and, and at first thought, if you put yourself in their sandals, I don't doubt when they said, make this valley full of ditches, they believed God had come and he was delivering them in the hand of Moab. Their first thought might have been, does this mean this is where we die? We're digging our own graves? In reality, that is what God's calling them to, to die to self, spiritual death. You can't save yourself. He says, for thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain. And they're waiting for the final statement. Is this where we die? Yet this valley will be filled with water. How's that going to happen? Now step into the sandals of this military. You've been marching seven days. You've run completely out of water for days. The horses, the animals, the livestock you've brought, some of the livestock are there to feed you. You've got three armies from three kingdoms. You know, they don't have massive you know, refrigerated trailers to bring. They're, they're bringing their meal on foot, and they're slaughtering it as they go. And the word is given in the military. You're, you're, you're in the, you have the sandals of a soldier. The word is given from your superiors. You have a new assignment. In the middle of this desert, in the midst of your thirst, with no water in sight, you need to start digging ditches all over the valley. Now, the instruction is given specific, and you're told the reason you're digging is because God is going to fill the ditches, the valley, with water. They don't know how. It's not going to rain. There's not going to be wind, but water's going to find its way into the holes in which we dig. And we need it, and our livestock need it if we're going to survive, if we even have a chance at a battle. Your greatest need in all the world at this moment is simply water. And rather than send people out scouting to find rivers, instead of giving up on the mission, And just trying to get back home before you die, you're instructed to use what little amount of energy you have left in your faint condition to to take off your armor and start digging in the middle of dry, cracked ground. And it's interesting because this is an army of a a valley filled with soldiers that have been deployed for battle, not for excavation. They don't have shovels and wheelbarrows. What do they have? Swords and shields and helmets and spears. Think about how much fun it would be to, do, to dig ditches with equipment not designed for digging. This is a great reminder that oftentimes God's direction for us in the midst of our most difficult circumstances, it doesn't seem like his direction for us at the time from our mindset is going to be helpful at all. God always challenges us to take steps of faith in obedience to his leading, even though it seems counterproductive. But it's in obedience to his word. He promises that if we demonstrate our faith in him and we put one foot in front of the other to be obedient to him, if we do what we, only we can do, he will do what only he can do in our circumstances. I mean, think about it. When you're hurting because someone has betrayed you or wounded you or offended you, God says in his word, he says, forgive them. And you're like, you're crazy. They don't deserve it, right? It's counterproductive, counterintuitive to say, I'm going to forgive this person that has done something egregious against me. But see, God knows the path to freedom is through the valley of forgiveness. It's letting go in the same way you've been let go of your sin against God. It's a step of increased faith and trust in your heavenly dad. When somebody you work with is a jerk or they're rude or they're selfish, God says in his word, be kind and tender-hearted. He doesn't say get walked on and let yourself be taken advantage of. He never says that. But even in a rebuke, even in a correction, even in a hard conversation with someone that is out of line, God calls his children to be kind, to be gentle. And if we're honest, we don't want to be kind and gentle. We want to be rude. We want to be selfish. We want to be irritating because they're irritating us. See, it's a step of increased faith, increased obedience, 
trust in our Heavenly Father to respond to disrespect with respect, to respond to an insolent person with kindness and gentleness and patience when they don't deserve it. Why? Because we don't deserve it from Him. When you feel like you don't have enough money to make ends meet and you feel stressed about your finances and you're you're rubbing pennies together, God says in His Word, bring me the first of what I've given you. You can't give it because it doesn't belong to you. Bring it to me. It's mine. And I will multiply the rest. And it seems counterintuitive when you don't have enough. But God knows that 90% of what he's given you blessed can do far more than 100% that is not blessed. But it's a step of increased faith and increased trust in your heavenly father when you can't prove how it's going to work out. You can't prove how the ditch is going to be filled with water. Here the three entire nations are ready for battle, but they're unable to function without the basic necessity they need. And God says, I know you're tired. I know you're weary, but now it's time for you to work your butt off. And without the most proper tools to be the most effective, you need to dig some ditches. You can't make water appear out of thin air. You can't make bitterness in your heart towards someone go away, but God can as you walk out forgiveness. You can't change the heart of someone that's a jerk, but God can through your demonstration of gentleness and kindness and mercy. You can't snap your fingers and increase the amount of money in your bank account, but the God who owns cattle on a thousand hillsides can as we're obedient to him with just one word. Only God can do what you need God to do, but almost every time, God has a ditch for you to dig, and often it's with a tool that is not best or most effective for the job. How many times does God give us an instruction of something we need to do or a way we need to respond, and we're like, that doesn't even make sense. Why would he have me do that? If I did it this way, it'd be so much faster and more effective. God's like, I'm not calling you to do it your way. I'm calling you to do it my way. Trust me. This is a step of obedience, not out of guilt, not out of obligation. It's a step of of faith. And to take a bigger step of faith than we've ever taken before, our faith has to increase a few degrees. What what if right now, let me ask this question, you might want to write it down because you can't see it on the screen. What if right now your greatest need in life was actually your path to greatest blessing? Think about that. The greatest need, like if you could sit down with me one-on-one and you could say, this is my greatest need in life right now. What if that's actually the path to greatest blessing? Rather than your greatest obstacle, rather than your greatest hindrance, rather than your biggest problem, rather than your biggest miracle you need, what if the greatest need you have right now is your pathway to greatest blessing? I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt, there's many of us in here online, and and you've been asking God to step in and do something only God can do. You've been asking God, God, show me your faithfulness. Show me your favor. Step in and do this. Are you being faithful yourself? Are you just saying, God, you be faithful, but I don't have to be. Are you demonstrating your trust in him? Are you being obedient to what you know he's asking you to do? Is there a relationship you're hoping God will one day heal, and you just keep waiting? Well, they need to ask me to forgive them before I can forgive them. No, forgive them already. That's the ditch you need to dig and get ready for God to bless with water. You want your kids to grow up with a faith in God that's an anchor for their life that they never depart from, that's a rudder for their soul, then don't treat regular engagement with God's word as, a, as, a, as something that's, ugh, right? See the value of hearing from the God of the universe, your Savior, and invite them into that. Don't treat Sunday gatherings with the church as something we go to when we have time on the weekend and when we're around, but when there's other opportunities and other things we can go to that are fun, then yeah, it's kind of just something we take or leave. 
Don't dismiss the, the in-person and online tools available to accentuate and assist you in the development of your kids through Takuma Island. Don't consider the Infused Youth Ministry as just something, well, in some seasons of our life, it's kind of an ad hoc thing. If we can, we'll be there. But, but what do you want long-term for your kids? Is it want, you want success in these other areas, or do you want them to know who they are in Christ more than anything else? And you'll take every amount of assistance you can have in their young life to nurture that within them. Don't reject the idea of being in a disciple-maker group because you, you don't have time. That's where your faith will grow the most exponentially. Don't fill your life with excuses to get out of it, but make weekly opportunities where you sit down with brothers and sisters in Christ, one of your highest priorities. Make opening the Word of God at home with a hunger to hear from God, something you're modeling in front of your kids, not something you're doing out of, out of legalism, but doing some, something you do as a part of who you are as a child of God out of desire. And share with your kids about the challenges you face. Share with your kids about the, the questions and faith that you have, the doubts that you wrestle with, but also let them see your faith in action where you're trusting God in the midst of not knowing how he's going to bring the water. Share with them about the ditches you're digging. Some of us would say, I just need more money. It's my greatest need. could be the pathway to your greatest blessing because you're asking God to be faithful and generous, yet you're not bringing to him the first of what he says is his into his storehouse. It's a demonstration of faith, a mark of obedience, and it's how God redeems the financial area of your life. It's surrendering first as Christ surrendered his life for us. God gave us his all, and now he asks us to bring the first back to him and recognize it's a recognition that every resource we have has been given to us by him. Here's the bottom line. Your greatest need can become your greatest blessing when it drives you to depend on God, when it drives you to depend on God more than you could ever depend on anyone else or even yourself or anything else you have access to. Because the truth is, in this moment, only God can send the water. They have nothing else to turn to. Sometimes he wants us to dig a ditch when we don't see any source of water. God wants to see our faith in action. There's a great moment later on in the New Testament, much further in the Bible, where the half-brother of Jesus, James, is going to write down something he learned growing up with Jesus, seeing his ministry, not being a follower of Jesus when Jesus was alive, but James came to faith when he saw his brother risen from the grave. James's is one of the most extraordinary testimonies of faith, because when Jesus was alive and doing miracles and preaching, he's like, that's my brother. He's not the son of God. And then he saw him risen from the grave. He's like, that's my brother. He was dead. He's alive again. That's the son of God. Everything else, that changes everything. The guy who said he could die and come back, he did it. He pulled it off. I follow him now. This is what he says. He says, anyone who doesn't breathe is dead. And faith that doesn't do anything is just as dead. Faith without action. Now, do you really think the God of the universe needed these boys out there digging with shields and spears? No. Could God have made it so much easier and just immediately, boom, shovels, excavators, backhoes, right? He could have. But the same is true that God can, with a word, can take a, a mountain or a desert and move it and immediately create a pond or a lake or an ocean, right? Now there's a huge ditch. He just moved a mountain. God could have filled their canteens with water. I mean, they had hides that were sown that they would carry their own water in. He could have just said, that's it, you guys have water. And boom, it's there. No work on their part. They would have chugged it. It could have been never-ending supply. It just, they keep drinking it. It keeps reproducing within their canteen. He could have saved a step, and he could have just put it in their bellies. Like, he could have just provided for them, and boom, it's there, and they're fully restored, ready to fight. They don't even need to sleep. They don't need to drink. They're ready for battle. He could have if he wanted to. 
But it's almost as if God is saying, you want me to show up. You want me to provide. You've forgotten that I'm your provision. You've forgotten that it, what, what you need more than anything else is me. Show me you trust me. Show me you trust me. Show me that you believe I'll be faithful. Put your faith in action. They're not earning the water. That's legalism. They're not doing this, try to get something from God. They're doing this, oh yeah, I forgot, you're my provider. And if I'm obedient to you, you provide. That's who you are as my dad. Show me your trust, I'll show you my faithfulness. Throughout the New Testament and the Gospels, we hear Jesus make a statement time and time again, when Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw their faith, there's evidence of faith. When Peter's on that boat, we talked about last week, right? And Jesus says, come. Peter, what's he do? He has to step over the edge of the boat, and he has to put that foot out there in the water, and there is a conscious decision he has to make to shift his weight from the, the foot in the boat to the foot that's going in the water, right? He's putting his life on the line with trust in action in the word of Jesus. There's a guy with a withered, withered hand that Jesus comes across. What's Jesus say to him? Stretch out your hand. This would have been an offensive thing to someone with a withered hand. He's like, obey me, trust me. Stretch out your hand and watch as the tendons and the sinews and the, 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 the ligaments and the bones are restored and build themselves as he does it. There's a guy sitting on the ground, never walked, years, decades, his legs probably look like twigs from atrophy. Even if someone helped him to stand, they would just crumble and crack under his weight. And Jesus says, all right, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. I'm going to heal you, but I want, you to, I want to see you trust my word. Put your faith in action. There was a guy who was blind from birth. Jesus goes up. What's he do? He plays in the dirt, picks up some of it, and then he hucks a loogie, <laughs> spits in it, starts to play. Yeah, it's nasty. I'm with you. It's nasty. Then what does he do? The guy's blind. He doesn't know what he's doing. He just starts playing with mud in his face. This guy thinks it's some new cleanse or something. I don't know. And then he says, go to the pool of Siloam and wash it off and you'll be healed. He's saying, I'm going to heal you, but there's one place you need to go. Obey me in this and you'll be healed. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. I think many of us are probably waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for God to show up. Waiting for God's faithfulness to be on display. Are you being faithful in the waiting? What are you doing when you obey God's word in ever-increasing ways? You're digging a ditch. You're believing that even this, though this ditch won't produce the water you need, it won't put the water in your belly, it won't quench your thirst, it won't solve your problem, you're demonstrating you trust God more when you realize you need something. Only he can provide. Only he can send the water, but he wants you to dig a ditch. Now, Bring me a musician. Now, bring me a... It worked with Elisha. Where's my worship team? I thought it would work. Now, bring me a musician. That's me just picking on them. I didn't tell them to listen to that cue. I was like, every other time I was like, the worship team's going to come up and I'm going to say, I'm going to use Elisha's word, see if it works. Now, bring me a musician. It's got like a very poetic arc to it, doesn't it? That evening, the soldiers begin to dig. They didn't have shovels or heavy equipment. They had helmets, swords, and shields. You can kind of imagine them starting to try to break the hard, dry, cracked ground, slaving away, already thirsty. They're parched now. They're breathing heavy. This is ridiculous. We're going to die. Some would believe. Others would doubt. Is God really going to show up and fill this with water? And you know, that evening, you could, you could measure the faith of every single soldier in that valley. 
of every single battalion, from every single nation, as all three are gathered for war. You know how you could measure their faith in God? But by the, the, the width, the length, and the depth of their hole. How big their ditch was. And we don't know exactly how it played out, but I believe if we could go back to that moment and we could look out across that valley, we'd find three different types of ditches. There are probably some that lack the faith to obediently fulfill the command. Maybe they'd already given up. They were already done with God. They were done with this whole difficult seven-day journey. They thought they were going to die. So what did they do? They dug a hole just big enough in the ground to show that they were obedient to their commander. But they didn't believe God was going to bring water. They believed this was their last night on earth. They did what they were supposed to out of duty, out of obligation, not driven by faith and trust. Is that you right now? Are you operating based on duty and obligation, feeling like you have to appease God or he's not going to show up? I promise you, if that's your approach, he will not show up. Because you're putting him in second place, you're putting yourself in first place, and God is preeminent. He will not share first place in your life with you. He has to be first. This is a whole representing no faith at all. It's legalism. It's just going through the motions. There were others that were probably desperate for water, and they knew their only hope was God. Maybe they didn't even believe God yet. Maybe they were from Edom, and they didn't believe necessarily in the God of Israel being the only God. Maybe they had idols that they worshipped. Maybe that other gods they thought well of, Baal or Asherah or who knows how many others, Greek gods and goddesses. So even though they lacked the energy, they believed Elisha at his word and they dug a good-sized ditch for them and for their livestock and maybe for one or two guys that they cared enough about so that if God showed up, this would be enough. A ditch representing a small faith. But as you looked across that valley that night as the sun was setting, I believe there would have been one more thing you would have seen. You would have seen a lot that had stopped digging. They'd given up. They'd laid down for the night. Their gear scattered all around their hole. But if you looked as the sun was going down out towards the horizon, you would every once in a while still see a helmet come up out of the surface of the ground with dirt and a shield come up or the back end of a spear as they're trying to dig deeper. And they weren't interested in digging a ditch. They were interested in digging a pond. The size and depth of a ditch that would be enough to bury someone in. Because it wasn't enough just to provide water for themselves. They dug a ditch big enough to quench the thirst of every person they could see in the distance and all their animals. And they wanted their faith in God to be a testimony to others that would come and drink. They wanted their lives to be a testimony of the goodness of God to provide for their needs. Who always provides. Who does not fail. We just sang that. You never fail and you never will. Their need was great, but so was their dependence on God. And Elisha is exposing that the idols that Jezebel and Ahab and Jehoram had relied on were dead. They had no power. That in their point of greatest need, there was one and only one name that could provide. There's some of us right now, you are chasing things that cannot provide to you in a storm. You're chasing things that will not bring water into your valley. You're elevating them as your highest priorities for you, for your kids, for your family, for your marriage. Things that you're wanting in your flesh, things you're craving and desiring, things you're filling your life with, things you're investing in financially. And when things get hardest, there's only one place you can turn. Verse 20, the next morning, while the sacrifice was being offered, water suddenly started flowing from the direction of Edom, from the direction they had come from for days. They knew there was no water there, and where's the water come from? From there. And it flooded the land. Meanwhile, the people of Moab had heard that the three kings were coming to attack them. 
Did they have spies watching the, 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 uh, the borders of their land? Maybe. Did, did word get to them that there was this alignment of three nations to invade Moab? Maybe. But they had called together all of their fighting men from the youngest to the oldest, and these troops were now standing at their border ready for battle. When they got up that morning, the sun was shining across the water, making the water look red. The Moabite troops took one look and shouted, Look at that! Blood! The armies of Israel and Judah and Edom that don't get along very well, that don't like each other. In the night, they hated each other. They killed and slaughtered each other. Come on, let's go take what's left in the camp. But when they arrived at Israel's camp, the Israelite soldiers came out and attacked them until Moab turned and ran away. Israel's army chased them all the way back to Moab. And even there, they kept up the attack. Moab, Moabites didn't have a chance. They're wiped out. And God gives them a victory in a miraculous way. So the question for us is, what size of ditch are you digging right now? What level of obedience are you demonstrating right now in your life? Are you compromising? Are you cutting corners? Are you hoarding? How long, how wide, and how deep is your faithfulness and trust in God? I promise you, it's not how long and how wide and how deep his love is for you or the length he's willing to go to show you his love. Because your greatest need in life might be the perfect path God wants you to take, to become more reliant on him than you've ever been before? Will you be faithful first to demonstrate your belief God will be faithful to his promises? We're going to sing a new song, Ron and Gretchen are going to share it with us. I just want to read to you the first two verses because it just fits this perfectly. Here's verse one. It says, oh my soul, be still when my heart is fragile. Hold fast to the truth. There is still hope in this storm. The second verse, help my eyes to see though my faith is shaking. Teach me to believe every word you say is true. You are making all things new. We're going to sing this song and then I'm going to come back and we're going to pray together.
foundation so I'm holding on to the promise of your truth it's the hope that sees me everybody joining us online too. I don't do this often at all, but as a step of just faith in God and trusting Him, would you stand where you are online? And I want you to, to grasp that I don't want you to leave here just kind of feeling like a hopeful emotion. I don't want you to feel, oh God, you never let go, you never let go. That's not enough. The, the essence of this story is God's calling us to faith in action, not just 
to hope and believe, but, but not have anything to tie it to, a demonstration of trust. So what ditch is God calling you to dig in faith? He's sending the water. He has, a, he has a calling on every single one of our lives to leave this place and to start something or stop something or ask something or forgive something or say something or demonstrate something to put our faith in action. Maybe there's somebody right here online and today your step, your ditch you need to dig is just say yes in faith to Jesus. To say yes, I believe. I believe he's my savior. Maybe right up to this moment today you didn't, but today that changes and I be, you say, I believe he's my savior. He's my Lord. And I want to invite him into my life. I know I'm a sinner. It's a decision to say, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe. I believe in you. I believe you're the Son of God. And you died on the cross in my place. We're going to pray. And I'm going to give you the invitation. Just repeat after me and say those words. If today's that day for you to nail that down and to step across that line. But I also want to pray for each of you that, that God would make it abundantly clear what's the step of obedience he's calling you to take, the ditch he's calling you to dig. Lord Jesus, if there is that person here with us today, would you help them to grasp and understand the weight of what they're doing, that their salvation is not found in their ability to try to do good. It's not even found in trying to recite these words. These words convey the condition of their faith and trust in you. Everybody, would you just join me? Repeat out loud. Just say, Lord God, I know I'm a sinner. And I know you came to save me. I accept your death in my place. And I receive your forgiveness. Come into my life and make me new. I want to learn to follow your Holy Spirit. Thank you for saving me. Amen. Lord God, I lift up everybody else that's here in this place and everything else that's running through our minds. Your Holy Spirit. Our ways are not your ways. Our thoughts are not your thoughts. Your Holy Spirit can do a million things at one time. You can do seven billion things at one time. A trillion things at one time. You are incalculable unfathomable and of all the, the ways you could have went about orchestrating this world you came in the flesh and you laid down your life in our place and we are humbled by that God but we also know Lord that your demonstration of generosity and grace compels us to put our faith in action to take steps of obedience you're calling us to take I don't need to run down a list of things, Lord, because we claim the promise of Jesus and your Holy Spirit that there's far more you want to tell us than we're ready for, but your Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. So would you give each of us who can hear my voice, Lord, a desire for your Spirit to show us that step of obedience. Some of us already know it, God. Would you give us the courage to share it before we leave this room so that there's accountability? For other of us, Lord, we've got to figure out what to do first because there's 19 things we know we need to start, we need to stop, we need to say, we need to ask, we need to speak, we need to let go of, we need to give away. The list is long, and we need your Holy Spirit to help us figure out what's the, what's the steps in the process. And God, that's one of the biggest benefits of a disciple-maker group is we get to talk that out with people we trust. It's one of the biggest benefits of, a, of an environment like Celebrate Recovery on Friday nights to put, put them, people to put themselves in environments where they get to have that dialogue have a sense of speaking and being encouraged with one another that God is showing them things and, and leading their hearts and that we need assistance, support, and accountability to live it out. Because Lord, when we're in a, a dark closet alone, it's easy to feel something here and then go right back to our toxic living outside of this place. We don't want to go that way anymore, Lord. We don't want to give up on the ditch and just die. We, we want to keep digging in faithfulness and trust knowing you're sending the water. 
in your time and your way. But may we not miss that miracle when you deliver it. We know you won't let go of us. You never will. May we believe that more today than we did yesterday. In your awesome and holy name we pray.